0: Ladies and gentlemen, there has been a murder, and you are a suspect. Oh, this is so fabulous. Ain't nothing
1: like getting together with Ben and having a good meal.
0: I wonder what's for dinner. This is delicious. It was at this moment he knew.
1: This is rotten. What'd you say? I said eat. (laughs) Drink. Alright everybody, welcome to the show. My name is Charles Demick. This is the very first episode of Eat, Drink, Murder. And you might ask yourself, what is Eat, Drink, Murder? It's a podcast where we talk about food and some of the most interesting South Carolina stories that have ever been explored. Alright, so today... I'm talking with my guest, Sharif Akram. Sharif, how are you doing? What's up? What's up? Thanks for having me. Oh, man. The pleasure is all mine. So, um, I just want to say, if someone finds this podcast 10 years from now, and me and you have both made it, Uh I think we should both email them like a million dollars. Or, like, there should be some... Yeah, I mean, there has to be some type of prize for finding this fossil. Okay. And this is the very first episode of Eat, Drink, Murder. I think it's going to be... Can we do something besides
0: a million dollars? We will send you a signed
1: (laughs) (laughs) T-shirt. We will give you a free signed T-shirt. We will
0: come to your house and make cookies.
1: Hey, that's not bad. Uh, You know, some people might take that. All right. So um, this show um, has a couple different segments. Of course, it's called Eat, Drink, Murder. The first part is going to be about... The food. What is this segment called? It's going to be called The Main Course. And Sharif, (laughs) tell us what our main course is tonight. The
0: Main Course, so when you hit me up and you told me to bring something, I thought about it, and I I felt like it would be appropriate. I don't want to say celebrate. I'm going to say commemorate. Okay. Acknowledge. Pay homage to the coronavirus.
1: Yes, because it is something that has affected everyone. In the world,
0: affected more like have completely wrecked the lives of.
1: Indeed. What, I mean, what did you. Maybe not
0: wreck your life, but you are in, in, in some way, shape, or form, you are dealing with it.
1: You are feeling it, that's for sure. Yeah, you You're are. definitely feeling it.
0: Yeah. We have Corona Cheese Dip.
1: Corona Cheese Dip. Tell me about what, what is Corona, Corona Cheese Dip? Corona
0: Cheese Dip is uh, something that I came across on the internet. It only has three basic ingredients, and you go from there. So you're going to use like a regular thing of cream cheese and a can of Corona. You pour the Corona in a pot until it gets hot, add the cream cheese until that melts. All the cream cheese, there's no chunks. You don't want, no one wants chunky dip.
1: And I'll, I'll, let me just add, no one wants blue cream cheese. Well,
0: <laughs> that's <laughs> Because preference. we did
1: have a little bit of an issue where I think Sharif <laughs> may have grabbed some uh, cream cheese from the very back of his refrigerator
0: yeah, so uh, you know, some people prefer cream cheese, some people prefer blue cream cheese. It's kind of like blue cheese. I don't know see. if we
1: can talk about that just because somebody could get sick. And technically, we're half a food podcast. So, yeah. So, <laughs> so let's not on the blue cream cheese, blue cheese. A-okay. I'm not a fan, but okay.
0: Blue cream cheese is still still questioning that one.
1: Yes. Yet yes. to be determined. It's still got a whole bunch of, you know, there's still a whole bunch of science that needs to go behind whether we can actually talk about blue cream cheese or not.
0: Yeah. But but about the Corona cheese dip, once you have your cream cheese, your white, fresh cream cheese melted, and you don't have any more lumps in your Corona boiling mixture. At, at that point, once all the cream cheese is melted down, you want to just add some cheddar cheese, about eight ounces, about a cup.
1: Sounds good. Sounds good.
0: Yeah. And then from there... Uh, you can kind of dress it up. I, I actually added habanero peppers and cilantro.
1: All right. I like cilantro. And um, I think that it's, it gives it a very fresh taste. Right.
0: It freshens it up.
1: Yeah. And the, the dip itself, if I do so. If you do so. <laughs> if I do so. Do so, so if, say myself. If I do so, say myself. Uh, It is quite delectable, and I thank you for bringing it. And there was something else you brought, too. What was that?
0: Well, you know, you got to wash the Corona dip down with the Corona churros.
1: Corona churros. Corona churros,
0: okay.
1: (laughs) What are Corona churros?
0: Well, I couldn't find a cure, so instead I found a churro recipe online. (laughs) Uh, which is close enough because you need something to uh, follow up after uh, a rich dip like the Corona cheese dip. Um, so we have these little churros that we make with uh, croissant. You just grab a regular tube of croissants, cut them out into four rectangles. You spread butter, cinnamon and sugar on them, and you uh, stack them on top of each other. From there, you will make four strips out of each stack. Twist those strips.
1: Now, do you have to be some type of artist to twist these strips, or will any average person be okay? Because honestly, it looked to me like you were doing some uh, artisan... Did
0: it look complicated? It did. Well, it dang. did. So I'm glad. I, I was hoping that. It was really easy, you know, so it's something that you can do in front of your friends to make, to impress them, to make yourself more fancy than you really are, but you just, you'll twist them, and then you'll put them in your already preheated oven on 350, Bake them for about eight minutes, and voila!
1: And that's not all. You also created some type of magnificent dip to go with these Corona churros. Yeah,
0: so we have the chocolate dip to go with your churros. I used some cream, some heavy cream. We we were out of heavy cream, so I used coffee cream.
1: But anyway, uh, use that nonfat coffee cream that I have. <laughs> yeah, that <laughs> zero fat. It really it did t- work. So who cares? It, it did. It did.
0: Yeah. Uh, you only need a little bit of it. And, you know, I really didn't measure this. So I'm sorry, guys, I just eyeballed it. And it was like less than a handful of chocolate. I put that in a little bowl and I took another very small bowl and I wanted to do about equal amounts of cream to chocolate. So I poured about just as much cream into a little bowl and put it in the microwave for about 30 seconds till it got really hot and put cayenne pepper in the mix and i let it sit for a while once you stir all that up you'll have a little chocolate sauce for you
1: and they go perfect with these corona churros, corona churros i tell you I'm telling you so we had a nice little corona soiree a corona soiree i like that i like that and i gotta tell you um i think that all of the dishes that you made tonight they were not only dippable um they were delightful and
0: <laughs> i really appreciate that
1: i think that's gonna wrap up the first segment but i'm gonna do a power plug real quick mm-hmm. always remember you can check out more exciting and delicious dishes on our digital series called backroad bites which i hear they're making a new series takeout edition hmm. I, I do know that the restaurants are definitely having a hard time right now. So anything we can do to kind of show some exposure on these restaurants, I think will definitely help them.
0: Yeah, I agree.
1: Yeah. Um. So now that we're done with the main course. All right. Let's get into our story for the night. And do you know what our story is about, Sharif?
0: I do not know what our story is about. Who are we talking about? So is this... Is it a specific genre that we're going to be talking about?
1: We're going to talk about all things, like, bizarre. (laughs) All things
0: bizarre in South Carolina.
1: In South Carolina only.
0: Only South Carolina. Right. Oh, that's cool. I like that.
1: So this is something, if you're listening to this and you are from South Carolina, this happened where you live. So just think about that the entire time while you're listening to this.
0: (laughs) Thanks for the nightmares. I
1: appreciate that. (laughs) I think it's going to be a good time. We're both really into true crime. And tonight, we're going to be talking about Leroy Martin. Leroy Martin. Also known as the Gaffney Strangler. Wow. I'm going to go ahead and first acknowledge our sources. We have the book Palmetto Predators, Monsters Among Us by Mark R. Jones. There's also articles from the gaffney ledger that i'll be referencing which is a which is a local paper in gaffney also i got some notes from an investigation discovery episode a crime to remember on one of their episodes they covered the gaffney strangler which was also very informative shall we get into the story let's do this let's do it all right our story begins february 8th 1968 in gaffney south Bill Gibbons, a managing director for the local paper called the Gaffney Ledger, receives a phone call. And this is what the phone call is. We're going to reenact it. Reenact. Okay. It.
2: Sixty-seven, Jerusalem Road, Union County, in the name Annie Louise Dedman, Spindale, North Carolina. Don't go by yourself. Go and get the sheriff.
1: What? (laughs) Wow. So Gibbons thought this was just a prank call. What he called it was a kook and crank call. Have you ever heard that before? A kook and crank. Kook and crank. <laughs> what is a kook and crank kook and crank he said I thought it was a kook and crank a kook call. And
0: crank, okay, I kind of like that though,
1: but he I mean but he decided to notify the authorities anyway, and so he headed to the sound jail. this is I think it's very similar to other serial killers, like the zodiac killer who likes to notify the press mm-hmm. this guy worked at a local paper, and they never found him the and they never killer found killer. him. Interestingly enough, this happened like 11 months before the Zodiac Killer. Wow. And those of you who don't know, he also had this strange impulse. He would send letters to news agencies. A very intimate relationship with the press. Why would someone who kills people want to try to have some type of a relationship with the press?
0: Um. So I, I think Um. in any type of these, like... Serial killers are heinous murders are are insane people like that. It's almost always driven by recognition, it's right?
1: All- so Gibbons goes immediately to the local sheriff. Um, his name is Julian Wright. Um, about the phone call, and about thirty minutes later, Gibbons and the sheriff take a deputy and they he- they head to the closest location that. This anonymous caller had called in about, which happened to be the bridge over Clear Creek on Ford Road in Gaffney. The deputy, whenever they arrive, um, his name's Billy Bridges. Uh, He leans over the bridge railing, and (laughs) he sees the nude body of 20-year-old Nancy Paris. Bridges calls the sheriff over, and the sheriff says, My God, we've got some real problems. (laughs) You think? Uh, you think? <laughs> yeah, think. <laughs> so Nancy Paris had only been missing for one day. The last time she was seen, she was out walking her poodle, which I could not find the poodle's name. I thought that would have been interesting, but I couldn't find it. She had been raped, strangled, and mm. placed on a sandy bank, her head halfway submerged in the water with cigarette burns on her back. Dang. It was pretty gruesome. Yeah. Uh, When she was discovered, she had already been dead one day and was most likely dumped the night before. This is corroborated by a local witness who contacted the police two days later saying he saw someone in a black 1957 Chevrolet dump what he thought was a dog into the creek the night before the body was discovered. You don't go investigate it when someone dumps? What looks like to be a dog in a creek. Right. But so the police asked why he didn't come forward sooner. And the witness said, I'm married. And that night I was in a parked car with another married woman. Oh, wow. <laughs> I would have left that to myself. Probably see why he minded his business.
0: <laughs> none of my business. I'm getting home
1: to my wife. That's just the dog. That's just the dog. That's all he was telling himself the entire time. That That's is a just dog. a dog. That's None of my business. Do, do, do. And then the newspapers <laughs> come out, like, the next day, yeah. and it's like, oh, oh, He was on the other side of town cheating,
0: and so he couldn't identify a dead body on the other side of town, because then he had to explain to his wife why he was on the other side of town in the first place.
1: But his conscience got to him, and so eventually, I mean, two days later, he went to the police to tell him. Well, at least he did do that. Yep. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, just to talk about kind of the, the process here... <laughs> do you think this was purely just for like sexual desire or he obviously wants recognition? It's not
0: just sexually motivated and hide the body.
1: Right. Yeah. And I can agree with that. (laughs) One of the funny things is that, uh, the police force at the time didn't have, uh, a photographer. They didn't even have a camera. So Gibbons, the guy from the Gaffney ledger, He's the one who actually had to take the pictures of the crime scene for the cops in 1968. They didn't even have a crime scene photographer at all. No, no, I mean it's it's this small town in the middle of nowhere, and I'll and I tell I'll tell you I've been upstate before in these small towns, and I've Uh met reporters from there. Just like two years ago, we had somebody um, from Union County, which neighbors Cherokee. Um, come to, come to talk to us, uh, because we were doing a story up there and this lady pulled out a tape recorder in 2019. Wow. So this poor guy (laughs) who usually just covers high school basketball and city council meetings is now taking photos of a dead woman at a crime scene. He literally like just got done eating lunch, went back to work. Picked up the phone, and now this led to him having to take pictures for the police at a crime scene. Man. That's
0: a bad day. That's a bad day, yeah.
1: <laughs> Now, you know, this guy left clues for two more bodies. So police began to search for the next person that the caller mentioned, Nancy Christine Tina Reinhardt. She, she goes by Tina. And that's
0: all he left was just the name on that one, right?
1: no he 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 said when the when the killer called, he said, "Go to the second ridge, turn left at the woods, and walk a quarter mile into a pile of brush off of old chain gang road, okay, so he definitely gave them specific directions. specific directions to find this person, poor Nancy, yeah, two Nancys well, this one goes by Tina, but um both of them were Nancy though yeah Nancy Christine." Was her Christian name, but she went by Tina. And the other other lady's name was Nancy Paris. So Tina had already been missing for ten days. Um, The reason at the time local authorities didn't do anything whenever she went missing is because they thought she just ran away from home. Okay. They got to go to the second location that this that the killer had told them to go to to make sure there's not another body. So a group of deputies. Gibbons and a photographer for the Gaffney Ledger. So they got another photographer. They finally got well, I don't think Gib, <laughs> Gibbons was just like a manager. He was just out and about and he I guess he happened to have a camera for the last one. This time they actually got a photographer by the name of Tommy Martin who joined the search. And so did a guy named uh Jim Holland Jr. But Gibbons is a journalist, correct? What I have is Gibbons, is a managing director, so he's kind of the head honcho of this small paper company. I see. Yeah, but also another small small town reporter joined because something like this never happens in small towns, of course, right? And a guy named Jim Holland Jr. from the Spartanburg Herald Journal actually joined the deputies and the crew from the Gaffney Ledger to go to this second location. And so police spread out and eventually came across the body of Tina Reinhardt. She was only 14 when she was killed. Similar way to Nancy Paris, they were both strangled.
0: Oh my God.
1: There's still one more. There's still one more they got to find after they have just found two bodies in these little towns, okay? Um, they searched for the third victim. Um, her name was Annie Dedmond. And they found out that she was killed eight months prior to these two recent bodies they had just found. We're not going to discuss her last name being Deadman. Oh, gosh.
0: I don't know how to not be
1: dirty. Uh, It's it's all all right. We'll get past it somehow. Anyway, moving on. Her body was found in neighboring Union County off of Jerusalem Road. So here's the story- here's the story of Annie Deadman now this remember this was eight months prior to them finding the two other victims. Mm-hmm. Annie had spent the night of her abduction drinking with her husband at a local bar on the way home. They got into a fight mm-hmm. um the car was driving erratic and when they stopped, Annie jumped out the car to walk home. Her husband, Roger Deadman, obviously didn't care. They've been in fights before, and he went to sleep in the car and just decided to let her walk home. Literally the next day, when he wakes up in the morning in his car, he drives home to detectives where they were there to notify him that his wife had been murdered. Wow. And not only that. Wait, how did, how did it happen that fast? How did they, How did the detectives find out? The detectives had found the body. She was leaning up against a fence on a road. Eventually, somebody, I guess, found her before Before he even made it home. Before he even made it home. He gets there. Detectives are waiting for him. They find out that him and his wife were fighting the night before, and he gets arrested and sentenced to 18 years at Union County Prison Camp. Jeez. Fast forward eight months from now. Now you have this guy calling on the phone who's saying, I killed this lady. So did they immediately release him from prison? No. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Welcome to America. (laughs) I don't need, what is the difference between a a regular prison and a prison camp? Is this an outdoor prison camp? (laughs) I Actually, that's a good question, but (laughs) I can tell you that it doesn't involve tents.
0: And if you had me choose to go between prison and prison camp... I'm choosing prison.
1: (laughs) I don't know. It just sounds worse. There's nothing they can do. So poor old Rogers got to sit at that prison camp until they can prove who really killed Annie Dedman. So, ladies and gentlemen, do
0: not fight with your wives at a bar and fall asleep and let her walk herself home. Don't let her go. Don't do that. Make sure she is safe. Make sure she gets home safely. If not for her safety. For yours. <laughs> for your own.
1: <laughs> so you don't at least end up in a prison camp. Right. Man. These days. <laughs> Let me just set the scene now. Let's reset a little bit. We've They've made the connection. Three murders. The police. Now the state police get involved. They start getting a ton of leads. There's been three murders in these small towns in upstate South Carolina. I mean, the sky is falling at this point. Yeah. So the police put together a profile... And they they actually end up suspecting Gibbons, the reporter. Oh, my God. <laughs> the killer called. So at the time, the police didn't have enough to go by. So, of course, I mean, they have to have some type of suspect. And the only link to the killer they had at the time was... The news station. Was the news. <laughs> <laughs> so they let Gibbons know, like, straight up, hey, if the killer calls, we're just letting you know, we're tapping your phone. <laughs> and Gibbons receives another call, but this time... It's at his home. Oh no! And they only they only tapped the phone at the Gaffney Ledger where he was working. All right. So here's here's the call that Gibbons received at his house. Hello.
2: This is the same man who called you before. We're going to have to do something about that man down there serving my sentence. I killed Miss Deadman, just like I did Mrs. Paris and Reinhardt. I killed them all, with them all begging me not to do it. The Deadman girl was driving at a high rate of speed when she passed me at Linder's Vineyard. I laid her below the Transformers on the old Jerusalem Road with her head downhill. Her eyes were still
1: open. So Gibbons, after this phone call, calls the police. He's like, hey, I know you tapped my phone at the office, but he just called my home. And and the deputies are very suspicious of this. Mm -hmm. you know they even ask him like uh whenever they get there and police are questioning gibbons like how did the caller how did the caller know that to call your home phone whenever you know all the other calls have been at the gaffney ledger and we just put a tap on it right so gibbons at this point is like sweating because he he knows he's looking real suspect and um. Just whenever like it feels like everything is about to cave in, the phone rings. <laughs> oh, nice.
0: Can we have like Star ninety two back in the day though? Like,
1: didn't they have a way of tracing who? Uh, you know, honestly, I don't know. Um, I think they did have some type of tracing, but it is nothing like triangulation and stuff like that that we have nowadays. You yeah. Know? Um, you have to like keep them on the phone for but, two hours. But, no,
0: you you remember whenever someone called you and like.
1: Hung yeah, star sixty nine star sixty nine star sixty nine yeah. right um at this the phone rings, and Gibbons is off the hook. Deputies listen in on the other line in the house, <laughs> and this is the conversation Hello I forgot to tell you oh hold up, hold up. thank you first of all. I just want to let you know I'm not a big fan of what you're doing, but thanks for calling. continue <laughs> <laughs> I forgot to tell you that she had some Harris
2: Teeter stamps in her pocketbook. And the same weapons are used in all three deaths. What weapon? I can't say. That would give me away. Miss Dedman was killed in March, not in May. And I killed Miss Reinhardt at 10 a.m. on December 29th, not February 6th. The coroner got it wrong. Don't you think you ought to come and give yourself up? I'll get the chair. They'll get me.
1: You need help.
2: You might not even get the chair. Yeah, I'll get the chair. I had their hands and feet tied when I killed them. Where did you pick up the Paris girl? That would give me away. What about the Reinhardt girl? She had been dead a week. I had been back to the gravesite seven or eight times. You have some feelings, or you wouldn't be concerned about them, and why didn't why don't you give yourself up? They will have to shoot me like the dog I am. You need help. And we'll try to help you. I'm psycho. The only reason I'm telling you this is to get the other boy out. He's serving my time. One thing you can tell people I'm not going to pick up any woman that's fat and ugly. I'll be in, but if they don't catch me, I will kill again.
1: All right, and there's a lot to process there. I will kill again. I will kill again. Like, what? Ugh. God. But he does, in some weird way express remorse he like it's it's weird because it looks like of course he doesn't care I mean he's doing terrible things, but for some reason he feels guilt. This is why I hate Dexter because now I'm like sympathizing
0: with him and his dark passenger
1: wow, because it's interesting we're we're gonna we're gonna put a pin in that dark passenger thing, and we're gonna get and we're we're gonna continue the story because I think that might be relevant as the story progresses, Wow. Um, but, it but yeah, so he doesn't, uh, first of all, like fat and ugly represent shout out to the fat and ugly ones out there for real. You're finally safe. Y'all are, y'all yeah. are the, the true MVPs.
0: Yeah. Now everyone is
1: now you're the enemy of the hotel, right?
0: <laughs> like he feels bad that someone went down for his murder. And right. I, here I am thinking that he was enjoying seeing someone go down for it, but he's like, no, 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 I don't want anybody suffering on account of me, Which, although is, I am a serial killer and I brutally raped and murdered three right. other women.
1: So you have no remorse for the, the most awful thing someone could do to somebody, um but you do have remorse for someone that was convicted of your crime. And also well to me, maybe he went. does
0: have some small remorse for the women too. And I feel like maybe that might be one of the driving factors in him actually coming forward.
1: And you got to remember, he doesn't come forward. He,
0: uh. he, I'm talking about coming forward to Gibbons
1: ah, and yeah. saying,
0: Hey, there's some dead bodies that y'all need to find that nobody found. Like, is it like he feels bad that the family doesn't have any, Sort of closer, he wants them to at least, you know, at least recognize, like, hey, that they're dead. I don't think so. I think
1: he purely wants notoriety. I think he is so selfish, he doesn't even want Roger Deadman to be to have any type of credit for what he's done. Yes, so the very next day, um, the killer makes good on his promise, and on February 13th, 1968. Opal Buxton, a fourteen-year-old Opal, I actually like that name, but don't make fun of her name. Opal Buxton. Opal Buxton was a fourteen-year-old ninth-grade African-American honor student and member of the high school chorus. Were any of his other victims black, or were the other ones white? Right. This is the only African American. All the other victims were white. Wow. Which is so. It's very rare. It is for a serial killer. They usually. Just from books, TV shows, um, documentaries, we've learned that these serial killers usually will stay within their own race. Yeah,
0: they, they usually stay within their race and have a like specific type. But he sounds like he's all over the gambit here.
1: Right. So, like I said, Opal Buxton, um, she was an American honor student, a member of the high school chorus. Um, she left the house a few minutes before her 16-year-old sister, Gracie. Uh, Gracie was trailing about 50 yards behind, behind Opal. When a blue sedan drove up, a man jumped out, grabbed Opal and forced her into the trunk of his car. So Gracie runs, she, uh, she runs home to tell her father. So Gracie sees it. Gracie sees it. She's only 50 yards away. She's far enough away to where she can't do anything, but can still witness what's happening. Okay. Okay. So she runs home. There are, the, the car's already gone. That's awful. By the time she gets up to the car. So she runs home to her father, um, Emmanuel Buxton, tells him he jumps in his car, speeds down the dirt road that Opal was just on, only to discover Opal's books sprawled over the highway. Oh, no. And since the family didn't have a telephone, he had to go to his mother's house before he could call the police. Didn't have a cell phone. No, didn't have a phone phone.
0: Oh, he raced back to his mother's house.
1: Right, this is 1968. This is long before cell phones.
0: Um I'm Like, did he not have any signal? I mean, he must have <laughs> he must have had T-Mobile.
1: <laughs> no, so he's got to he's got to run back to his mother's house to call the police. How awful. Mm. I feel so bad for his for him
0: and for his daughter to have to witness her sister being taken away.
1: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And now That we have a real-time abduction. This just happened. He's just called the police to notify them. The town goes into a state of panic Mm -hmm. completely. It had to be chaos. Um, This is also the first time the police have a description of the man that they're looking for. Uh, Gracie, the 16-year-old sister of Opal, said he was a young white man wearing slacks, a jacket and that he was bareheaded. So, at that time, the largest manhunt in Cherokee County history was organized within an hour. Citizen volunteers joined with police. Sheriff deputies, highway patrolmen sled to search the area. There was even three private planes that were in the air within an hour searching for the entire county. And I think this is very interesting because even in the Um, documentary that we were talking about before. They talked, uh, the lady there said, she said that Gaffney is a small town, but it's really two towns. At the time, you got to remember, this is 1960s South Carolina, Mm -hmm. and it was still very segregated. I see. And to have an African-American go missing at the time, um, while there was the murders of these white women, it it somehow made the community come together to find this person. Wow. Which is... Super ironic. Yeah. But seriously, this is something that at the time didn't happen. And -hmm. this is something that brought the town together, I guess, in a way that nobody really wanted to, but at the same time was necessary. Wow. Right. So, yeah, local radio stations were broadcasting descriptions of the man and the car. They already had the car from the guy who... Was cheating on his wife. Um, it, I mean, it was terrifying the population, and even the schools were closed down. Family, family started barricading themselves in their homes. I mm-hmm. mean, just to just to make sure they were safe, because I mean, it was getting crazy. Uh, it's terrible. So, but anyway. he doesn't make any more phone calls to Gibbons at this point. No, no. Well, no, that no. makes sense because the story's out there now. It's out there. Everybody knows about him. Mm -hmm. The Gaffney Strangler is on the loose. So, um, like I said, there was even citizen volunteers that joined with police. Two volunteers, Henry Transo, who was the local golf pro, and Lester Skinner, a former state fire warden, met at Price's store on Chesney Highway, and they began to search the back roads for anything that might be related to Opal's kidnapping. So they're heading up Highway 11, and they spot a 1957 Chevrolet that was back down a cutoff trail. Uh-huh. There was a young man who was standing right next to the parked car. Uh, whenever the young man notices that he's being watched, he jumps in the car and speeds off. So Transo and Skinner uh, turned around and gave chase to the 57 Chevy. And the Chevy ends up pulling into a, a residential area. And goes into this guy's driveway. The guy's name is B.L. McGinnis. Okay. Who literally has nothing to do with this case and doesn't even know who the driver is. The driver literally pops out and he talks to McGinnis, asking him if he sold Beagle Puppies. Beagle Puppies. That's what the conversation was about. He jumps out and just starts. up. Hey, you you selling those Beagle Puppies? Wow. So anyway... Um, Transo and Skinner um they end up driving past the house, but they managed to write down the tag number and called the sheriff's department. Uh detectives later ran that tag number and it came back as LeRoy Martin. So So we got him. We got him. He is on the radar. He is But why would they stop chasing him? Did they not notice him? These were just Or did they lose
0: him or did they just say he must he must be innocent, obviously. The whole completely suspicious actions from earlier. Obviously, since he's talking about a dog, we should just drive away from this situation.
1: Well, they didn't even know what he was talking about. That—that was. I'm just saying, because he's having a, a nice, friendly conversation, we should completely leave the situation alone. Well, they didn't completely leave the situation alone. They wrote down the tag number, gave it to the police, and it ended up being the right guy. Wait, these were the cops. No, these, these were, were two citizen volunteers. Okay. Who were just out looking. They did a good job. They, they did, did a great their job. they did their civic duty, sir. They did everything. They did. Yeah. Maybe more than the police at this point. They did so much better than the police <laughs> at this point. You're absolutely right. So, we finally have suspect numero 1, Leroy Martin. Here's a little bit of background of Leroy. Just, there's not a lot of background information on Martin. He's 30. He lived on 2nd Avenue in Gaffney. Uh, he was married, had three kids, and he worked the first shift at Musgrove Mills, which was a textile mill in Gaffney. Um, he was also a former red top taxi driver and pretty much seemed to everybody like he was just a, a normal guy. No friars. They ended up discovering Martin did have a criminal record in 1957. He was 19. He was charged with assault and battery mm-hmm. with the intent to kill after assaulting a young girl in the woods behind his mother's house. That's not good. Nope. And another thing that serial killers, um, just, just from what we've learned, is they like to kind of test the waters, if you will. They like to see what they can get away with uh-huh. before... They can get caught. Like I start with an so this was the this was eleven years before he had committed any murders at all, but he did get caught. Um, he ended up serving one year of hard labor at the Cherokee County chain gang.
0: Jeez! Yikes! Yikes! <laughs> yikes! Yikes! <laughs> you know, Gaston does not play when it they comes got prison to prison camps. They prison. got chain
1: gangs. It's really it's no joke in mm-hmm. the South. Whenever it's the fifties and sixties, and you get in trouble, yeah. I mean, even, I mean, just seemed like a normal guy, even with that prior, you know, um, even the local police, whenever the state police told them, Hey, the guy we're looking at is Leroy Martin, you know, the state police were kind of, they were leading this case and they told, they told the local police, you know, this is our prime suspect. Um, and many of the local police were just openly skeptical. Like one deputy was like, Oh, it's not him. I know Leroy and his whole family. He got a wife and three kids and works a regular. Oh, wow. (laughs) (laughs) You know, if they were saying, you know, if Leroy is the strangler, you're wasting your time. Wow. Because he was just that normal of a guy. He's a small, it's a small town. Everybody knows each other.
0: Everybody knows Leroy.
1: Yeah, everybody knows him and just, just never would have thought that it was this guy. So the very next day. Most people like this would
0: go to another state. Right. <laughs> right. At least go to another county. All right. He does it right amongst everyone.
1: Right. And and it's just it's weird? just going to start getting weirder. Isn't that weird? Now that they have Leroy Martin, things will start getting a little weirder. You you just get to see how weird he is when mm-hmm. police have to follow him around with around the clock surveillance and they observe him washing his car. This is February. It's still, I mean, South Carolina can get cold. It's 20 degree weather. This guy's outside washing his car, going to his mom's house to change his tires with an old car, and also going to the local grocery store to pick up Wednesday's copy of the Gaffney Ledger. And whenever he was leaving on the way out, he noted to the cashier, he said, sometimes there just ain't no news. And people have to do things to make the news. Look at this. This guy here. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And the worst one of all, the following day... He's having his best day. The And the, the worst thing of all, fo- the following day, police follow him to none other than his third victim's house, Tina Reinhardt, where the family was having visitation service. Shut up. LaMonda Reinhardt. Tina's sister was standing right next to the open coffin of Tina Reinhardt when Leroy Martin walks in through the front door. He looked down into the coffin and told LaMonda, She sure is a pretty girl. I don't see how anybody could have done this to her. Oh, wow. Martin was even offered a cup of coffee and remained at the house for several hours talking with family members and other mourners. This has
0: to be the most despicable person.
1: This guy is the worst. Yeah. I mean, that's just... I mean, that's that's crazy.
0: It's insane.
1: He has to be... What? Is that a
0: sociopath? It's got, yeah,
1: definitely. Mm-hmm.
0: It's the people that completely lack empathy. Right. But they can do a really good job of...
1: Being such a terrible pretending person. Pretending to. Right.
0: They're really good at it.
1: The following day... February sixteenth, nineteen sixty eight, at six thirty AM, ten police cruisers filled with a dozen police officers, agents from Sled, and the FBI, and other volunteers arrived at the location where um Trounceau and Skinner, those two citizen volunteers. Yes. They had seen Martin standing beside his fifty-seven Chevy right before he peeled out and they followed him. They went and searched there. Officers fanned out, began to search the woods. While they were searching a gully, one of the officers noticed a large dead limb that was lying on top of a fresh green limb. Less than a minute later, they had unearthed the body of Opal Buxton, who had been buried in a shallow grave at just 14 years old. Oh, no. So finally, like some pretty decent police work here, I I would think. I mean, just to notice that. um, It shouldn't have taken him to go back a second
0: time. But maybe it's still good that they did it. I mean, it's pretty obvious. It's not. Well, I guess you could you could assume that he still has the victims. But based on his MO, obviously, this is somebody that does things in the moment and then immediately disposes of the body. So, you know, you would would have expected them to really heavily search that area. But
1: yeah, absolutely. And that very afternoon, uh, Leroy Martin was arrested at work for the murder of Opal and and the following day. He was charged with two additional murder charges, Tina Reinhardt and Nancy Paris. Police ended up searching the woods of Highway 11, uh, leading up to where Martin worked at the mill and found car keys, a small hairbrush, and three books of Harris Teeter stamps. Martin then received his final murder charge of Annie Lucille Deadman, on February 17th, 1968. And 11 days later... Annie's husband, Roger Deadman Was finally released From Union County Prison Camp (laughs) After serving nine months For a murder he did not Commit Mm
0: -hmm. Probably didn't get any compensation Or his job
1: back (laughs) Probably not Probably not at all (laughs) No Um, uh, Still at least he got out Good for you yeah. Yeah, He did get out They got the right guy And he was charged with all four murders. So uh, Leroy had to undergo an evaluation at the state hospital here in Columbia, South Carolina, on Bull Street. Um, He was ruled competent and he was able to stand trial. He did end up waiving his right to a trial by jury and ended up making South Carolina judicial history uh, because he was tried, convicted, and sentenced on four murder charges without ever facing a jury. Wow. Yep. So I guess like the ju- whenever you waive the right, but you're still pleading not guilty, you have the, the judge weigh in, and he actually becomes the judge and jury.
0: Why did he plead not guilty?
1: I guess he thought the evidence was so circumstantial at the time. Maybe he had a chance.
0: Then why did he waive his right to a jury trial?
1: This is from the horse's mouth. I don't believe I could get a fair trial anywhere in South Carolina. He even admitted, like, we d- we don't know... A lot about why martin did the things that he did um but he did end up telling his mother that he was serving time for the murders his double had committed he said ma i'm two people mm. he claimed he could feel the violent half of his personality taking control of his physical movements mm. or could it so, be his dark passenger
0: mm, i see yes wow nice dissociative identity disorder
1: i don't know but i mean it's it's interesting it's definitely interesting passing. and this all came to an end on may 31st 1972 martin was killed by another prisoner kenneth rumsey mm-hmm. who was serving an 18 year sentence for murder he plunged a homemade shiv into martin's chest just below the heart Rumsey was sentenced to an additional 20 years for murder, which seems kind of low, but it was a serial killer who you ended up killing. But before then, you were serving only an 18-year sentence for murder. It seems a little... 18 to 20 is, is life.
0: 18 to 20.
1: 18 to 20 is life? Yeah. Why is that life?
0: That's a life sentence. 18 to 20 years.
1: Why? Is that just what it's called? They call it a life sentence, right? Okay. It's
0: 18 to 20 years.
1: Interesting. I just, whenever I thought life, I, I always thought like, um, until you die.
0: I always thought that too, but no, a life sentence is actually a quanti- quantitative
1: number. Interesting. All right. That's a nice little tidbit. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, here's one more tidbit for you. After Martin was sent to prison, his 1957 black Chevy was repossessed and sold at auction for $150 to Tincy Bachelor. Tensy, you love life. Tinsy Made it into an odd tourist attraction.
0: Okay,
1: he said. He said I had girls coming by all hours of the day and night, wanted to take a ride. I think. uh, I think uh, part of it derives
0: from what would you just can't get over? What would drive someone to do that? But then you're also, for me, I think there's an element of like. I would like to know about this for my own safety. Where did these victims go wrong?
1: (laughs) I mean, there's definitely some morbid curiosity um, that goes into it. But anyway, um, he would drive them around in the strangler's car, uh, take them to where, where the bodies were found. Mm. And he would just turn off the motor, sit there in the dark and, The girls said it got way too weird. It was a tour. It was was a tour. Right. Wow. He said when things got real dark and quiet, um, they would all sit in the car at the sites um, where the victims were found. And he said something strange happened every time. The girls sitting in the back seat would start screaming and want to get out of the car. (laughs) and He was having a hard time with some of them just getting them to stay in the car until um, he could drive them back home uh, i'm sorry to say but that's what you get right <laughs> that's,
0: that's, that's so, exactly
1: what you get emily all right well that is the story of leroy martin what'd you think pretty crazy right
0: yeah i think that was pretty sweet good job you know yeah great detective work there
1: thank you thank you and it I'm was
0: covering mr
1: it was a lot definitely a lot but it was fun i enjoyed the it daphne strangler the gaffney strangler so
0: i feel like there's a few lessons that we have a a few few key takeaways here number one if you're at a bar do not i repeat do not leave your husband if he's if he's pissing you off do not leave your wife first of all i think you can get away with killing your husband no no (laughs) i'm saying we gotta talk to both of these here. don't let your wife leave and to the ladies out here i don't care how much your husband is pissing you off there's something worse out there waiting for you. Oh, absolutely. So please just get home. Okay. Get home. And then you can go and do whatever you want. Just make sure you are safe or maybe leave him at the bar.
1: Absolutely. Maybe yes. leave him
0: at the bar. Take his keys. If he's not acting right. I mean, this is bad advice, but if call you got to do something, call do, a cab. do not
1: walk home. Do not
0: walk home all by yourself. And don't let your ladies do that. Gentlemen out there, don't fall asleep. If she does that, follow her. Do something right. better than just fall call asleep. her
1: friend. Yeah, at least you won't go to a prison camp.
0: <laughs> and uh, also to the uh, I don't know aspiring serial killers out there, maybe don't call the news station.
1: Yeah, whenever I, I'm you not. Do your I'm not a big fan of getting um, of giving yeah, advice to anybody who commits murder. But definitely, I would say. Um, his hubris is what ended up <laughs> yeah. causing his demise. Mm-hmm.
0: But it is kind of a—I don't want to say a happy ending, but at least we have closure. We do for all of these murders. For all know, of for them, all of their families, we, yeah. they have closure, and that you know that's at least—and it's best rare. That is very rare, especially yeah, it is. when
1: you think about '60s African Americans. Mm-hmm. It was amazing to me. It's sad to say, but it's amazing to me that the community pulled together to find her. Right. Wow. This story is a lot of ups and downs and a
0: lot of irony. Right. And that's the biggest irony of the, of it all, is that it actually ended up bringing the community together, you know, which just it just kind of shows how racism does, just doesn't hold up. It's just a, a model that d- does not hold up, that we all have to come together. And, and I mean, it, it shouldn't take a serial killer, but you know, there's, there's going to be situations going to mean, disasters that we're all going to experience, you know? So, I mean, it was, um, uh, I don't know. That was a great way to get us started here on
1: eat, drink, murder. Hey, the Gaffney Strangler. That's going to do it for the rest of the show tonight. Sharif, okay. thank you again so much for coming.
0: Yes. Thanks. Thanks for inviting me. I appreciate it.
1: I also really
0: appreciate um what you're doing shedding light on actual missing persons in south carolina i mean ariana trotter she just recently went missing that was may of 30th may 30th of 2020 right um so my heart goes out to her family and if you have any information please again don't hesitate to call the williamsburg county sheriff's office um but yeah thanks again charles i really appreciate
1: it um we hope that you enjoyed the show that's our pinch of salt (laughs) Uh, you like that sign i like that Uh, oh you do that's our pinch of salt should i go for something i'm gonna go uh, you know what i might just change it up every single episode we'll see how it does that's our pinch of salt that's our pinch of salt everybody good night we love you be safe (laughs)
0: all right